Well, the reading is from uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, and that's on page 1161 of the Red Bible. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hand. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because we are clothed. when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the, the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable, acceptable to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. Well, um, this is quite a complex letter, isn't it, uh, Corinthians? Uh, I'm not going to cover everything verse by verse today. We'd be here for hours. Um, but you can see there's that exchange of letters going on. The Corinthians have got questions, often very deep questions, and Paul is, is responding to them. In today's sermon, I'm particularly going to reflect upon how we should live in the present when we know what the future holds. Let me start with one of the most terrifying questions in all of recorded history. Are we there yet? And I've written here for maximum effect, it's best rendered in a whining, weary and sing-song voice. Are we there yet? It sends a chill down the spine of every adult who's ever travelled with children. It reveals a tension in our experience of time. We've booked the accommodation, we've packed the car, we're on the highway, and we can imagine ourselves already there, by the pool with a cold drink. But we haven't arrived. 
even though we can confidently imagine ourselves reaching the destination. We have the frustration of being there in our imagination, but not quite there physically. As the body of Christ, we experience this tension with regard to the kingdom of God. There is this paradox that the kingdom has entered the world, but it's not yet fully realised. This will only happen on the last day when Christ returns. So in the meantime, the kingdom is here, but not quite yet. Christ has redeemed us, he's conquered sin, but the world is still a sinful place. On an individual level, we also experience this tension. We are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus is our master, but we still sin. We're being transformed by the Holy Spirit, but at times it seems very slow and very incremental. And so Paul is quite right when he says, we groan. We groan because of the disconnection between this earthly life that can be very tough and challenging, while having a sure hope in the promises that await us in the future. We know that a brighter world awaits. Well, from last week's uh, reading and David Knox's preaching, we noted that Paul describes us as uh, jars of clay containing a treasure, the gospel. We carry around with us the death of Christ so that we may reveal uh, life in Jesus. Well, Paul is the master of the metaphor. Books have been written about his metaphor and he embraces another one this morning. We are like tents. As you probably know, Paul earned his living as a tent maker. I imagine as he was stitching away, he gave some thought to this metaphor and he appreciates its depth and its aptness. So as I look to the west, across the nave this morning, I see metaphorically a field of tents. Some of the smaller tents have just come out of their packaging and they're fresh and they're unworn and their colours are bright and unfaded. And then there are the other tents. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. They're showing signs of deterioration. The material has become stretched and wrinkled in places. They are threadbare on top sometimes. The stitching is unravelling. They're fading to grey. There are so many patches and repairs that they bear little resemblance to their initial selves. Modern-day biologists would probably agree with this metaphor about how our tents, our bodies, change over time. Our cells are being replenished constantly. Hair, skin and nail cells are replaced rapidly. Over time, even apparently our organs and bones change. And the change is so pronounced that every several years or so, we become effectively a new creation. It raises the interesting existential question, who actually am I? What makes me, me? With several metamorphoses over a lifetime, what is the constant that holds me together? Well, Paul would argue that the constant is that we're intimately known and loved by God, redeemed through his Son, and we are an adopted child of God. That is where our personality lies. Our identity is formed through our relationship with God. That is what makes me, me. But let's get back to tense. Apart from the wear and tear, the tent metaphor reminds us of the limited role of our earthly bodies. Tents and our bodies are a stopgap measure. Very few people aspire to live in a tent for the long term if there are better options available. We've got to remember, Paul knows nothing about glamping. Tents are uncomfortable. They're exposed to the elements. Like our human bodies, they don't last forever. We hope for something more, a glorious and heavenly body like Christ's 
resurrection body. We're getting there, but we haven't arrived yet. Paul encourages us not to become despondent as we experience this earthly tension. He says that we have proof that our waiting is not in vain. Even though we're tense, we are also new creations. Even though we are tense, the Holy Spirit is indwelling and changing us. God, in the Old Testament, once tabernacled or tented with His people as they journeyed in the wilderness. In John's Gospel, in chapter 1, we're told that Jesus uh, made His dwelling with us. He also tented with us. In our present time, the Spirit of God dwells, or tents, within each of us. Paul's already mentioned this concept back in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. He said then, He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He repeats that idea in today's reading in verses 4 to 5. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Must have been an important point because he repeats himself word for word. God's purpose for us is that one day we will shed this tent-like body for a heavenly one. Our mortality will be swallowed up by real life, a life in heaven. It's an interesting phrase. Ordinarily, death swallows up life, but now, in an amazing reversal due to Christ's death on a cross, it is life that will swallow up death. This promise is assured because we are now effectively owned by God. There is a seal of ownership upon us. A deposit has been paid, guaranteeing what is to come. God has brought us, bought us at a great price. It's like a property transaction. You've bid, you've been successful, you're in a daze, you've signed the contract, you've handed over 10% to complete strangers. The arrangements with the bank are all in place, hopefully. Now all you have to do is sit back and wait to the day of settlement. And you've got every reason in a law-abiding country that it'll go according to plan. Yes, we'll still have to endure meeting and dealing with lawyers, sorry to the lawyers, signing more paperwork, organising the removalists, but you can see the end point and you can imagine living in your new home. You're already making plans about where you're going to place the furniture. This also comes with frustrations and tensions. You're there, you're imagining this new home, but you're not there yet. So, what do we do in the meantime while we are new creation tense, awaiting a heavenly body? Paul says two things. The first, in verse 9, is that we should make it our goal to please God, living lives that are worthy of our calling. We're not living pleasing lives so to earn our salvation, that's already been given to us. Although our earthly bodies are wasting away, we are responsible for our actions. We still have to give an account of what we have done with our lives before Christ on the last day. As you explore and ponder Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, you might be asking yourselves, what does a letter written nearly 2,000 years ago have to do with me, people on the other side of the world? How can I help others to relate to Paul's ideas and have them apply his teaching to their lives? Does this letter have any applicability today? How should it inform the way I live? Well, I'm very glad you asked. 
I would argue that first century Corinth is very much like 21st century Melbourne. Corinth was pre-Christendom and we here in Melbourne are post-Christendom. Melbourne's culture is becoming increasingly Corinthian. The Western world is entering a pagan phase. Paul's letters to the Corinthians are more relevant than ever. In an excellent book from several years ago by Ferdinand Mount titled Full Circle, How the Classical World Came Back to Us, the author argues that as the influence of Christianity has waned in the West, we find pagan lifestyles resurfacing. Our modern world has filled the present vacuum with the values of the classical past. Christian virtues such as humility, modesty, honesty, temperance, patience, contentment and respect are starting to lose their sheen. We have become online narcissists seeking attention and fame. We worship our bodies with a never-ending cycle of Botox, spas and plastic surgery. We find meaning in food and degustation menus. Our propensity for violence has become unleashed and normalised. Road rage, cage fighting, how did that happen? Gambling has never been more pervasive. People are no longer considered image bearers of God, but rather opportunities and a means to an end. Their worth based on their utility or usefulness. Like the ancient Greeks, people shop around in a spiritual supermarket. We get to decide what is true and what works for me. I suspect that our society is becoming more corrupt and less gentle. In summary, ancient Corinthians would feel quite at home in modern-day Melbourne. So what do we do as tents that are new creations as we await our heavenly bodies? Paul says there is something else that we must do as we live worthy lives. He introduces another metaphor. We are to be ambassadors. Sounds a bit better than tents, doesn't it? What images are conjured in your mind when you hear the word ambassador? Perhaps a rather swanky uh, residence in uh, Paris or London or New York, black tie dinners, cocktail parties, hobnobbing with the powerful and uh, important? Paul probably understood it differently. In the ancient world, there was a distinction between heralds and ambassadors. Heralds bringing a message uh, was sacrosanct in the ancient world. They were identified and likened very closely to the gods Hermes or Mercury. They were afforded great respect and protection through that association. Ambassadors were not always treated with such deference. They often had to negotiate difficult issues with difficult people. When Paul is using this metaphor, he might have uh, reminded himself of a Jewish delegation from Alexandria, headed by a great uh, writer-philosopher Philo, that travelled to Rome to meet with Emperor Caligula in 39 AD. It did not go well. Caligula, you might remember that name, was furious that the Jewish people refused to worship him as a god and place a statue of himself in their temple. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul refers to himself as an ambassador in chain at a time when he is writing in prison. I think actually he he may not have seen this as a metaphor, he might have considered himself an actual ambassador, literally. He's been given a message from God, he's told he's going to take it to the Gentile world, he's told he's going to appear before kings. I think he understood himself very much in that way. What do ambassadors do? They're given a message from a ruler and they convey that message to a people 
of another land. To be effective, they must have a good knowledge of the foreign culture while still remaining true to their homeland. They need to make connections across cultures. Christians are ambassadors because we have a message from a heavenly king, the good news of Jesus Christ, but we are increasingly finding ourselves as strangers in a strange and foreign land. Many people are ignorant of the message today or they find it unconvincing. For our message to be understood, we need to make connections with the world but not be subsumed by it. Let me conclude with a few tips for budding ambassadors. You may or may not agree with this. Firstly, you can be quietly confident without being arrogant because we have the greatest message to share, a message that comes from God, a message that is true. And God will achieve his purposes through you and sometimes in spite of you. Know what you believe and why. Be able to make a good account of your faith. Why does it work for you and how has your life changed? Don't fall into the trap of diluting the message to make it more palatable. As an ambassador, your role is to invite people into the kingdom of God. You're not there to win an intellectual debate. Ambassadors are very strong relationally. Be prepared to accept rejection with grace. Be gentle with people and respectful. Know when not to push too hard. If you're not making any headway, move on. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. You need to live a life worthy of Christ. The message and the reality need to match. Nobody likes a hypocrite. Don't live in a Christian echo chamber in which your only friends are fellow Christian. Make connections with the world and enjoy your friendships with non-Christian. Try to have a short conversation once a week which has something Christian about it. I was walking down the street today, dressed like this, bumped into my neighbours. Malcolm, you're looking rather flash in a coat, they were in their gym gear. I said, I'm preaching at church today. There's a bit of a silence. Must get you there one day. Bit more of a silence. But, you know, I'm planting a seed. Um, I think it's a step too far for someone to immediately be open to the idea of attending a church service if they have no Christian background. It's hard for us to imagine now. But imagine walking to a place where this, our culture's terribly different. It must be very confronting for people. So, if people are craving community... Make that our connection point. Small steps. Mention the organ recitals coming up, or we have a fete shortly, or there's a community garden. Uh, hold social events outside the church where your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends attend. Whatever we do, we have to be intentional, though. How might this activity be the first in a series of steps that over an extended period of time might actually result in people coming to church, sitting in the pews, and listening to the message. And my final point is pray and pray and pray. Thank you.